Uh, my name is Jordan, and I have the opportunity of serving with our NDG congregation um, as, a, as a local pastor. And here I am with you downtown. Um, I will uh, be starting with a verse from Psalm 75 and verse 8, if you want to turn to it. The passage that was read referred to, to cups or bowls uh, being poured out. Let's look at that. Psalm 75 and verse 8, we read this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That is, bottoms up. What is this cup or bowl that is being referred to here in Psalm 75 and verse 8? Well, we saw it in the reading, which was Revelation 16 and verse 19. And God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The cup of the wine of the fury of the wrath of God. What does that make you feel when you hear that? The cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. God's wrath. Does it wake you up? Good morning. Does it grieve you to hear of wrath coming? Does it scare you to hear of wrath coming? Maybe it makes you angry at God. Who does he think he is to do this? Maybe the God you want to believe in is one that is just loving and kind and Forgiving. I mean, after all, wasn't that what the cross was about? Forgiveness? But, but wrath? A cup of the fury of the wrath of God? How can God have wrath and be good? Does the wrath of God undermine the goodness of God? You wondered that? That's what we're going to look at today. Does the wrath of God undermine the goodness of God? To answer this, we're going to have to do some background work, context work. We are in a series in Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. You can see it kind of at the end there. It's written by a follower of Jesus named John, a disciple, who believed that Jesus was Lord, and because of his belief in Jesus as Lord, that put him in exile to a Roman Empire that believed Caesar was Lord. And in there, in, uh, in exile, John was, in Revelation chapter 1, we read, in the spirit on the Lord's day from that island of exile. And in the spirit on the Lord's day, he saw a series of visions of the heavenlies. We're in 15 and 16 of Revelation today. 15 and 1 says this, then I saw another sign in Heaven, this is a series of visions of the heavenlies, of heaven, and Revelation is that, is a book of God unveiling, revealing heaven. Why? God wants us to see on earth as it is in heaven. Why does he want us to see on earth as it is in heaven? So that we can live on earth as it is in heaven. 
That's why God is opening up heaven. And so Revelation as a book is both prophetic, you're seeing forward, and pastoral, it's working in you in that way. And he does it through signs or symbols. 15.1 again, then I saw another sign in heaven. Revelation is symbolic. We've been saying this every week, but it's so important you don't miss that. The illustration I'll use this week is like anime. Anybody here like watching Japanese anime? I got some hands. That's good. We had a guy this morning who's going to Japan on Tuesday who does not watch Japanese anime. Bless him. But Revelation is like watching anime, okay? It's an artistic rendition. So anime is known for you have all these camera effects. You got zooming and panning, and in particular, it focuses in on certain traits, right? So you know you got the big sad eyes thing. You know what I'm talking about? Big sad eyes thing. Revelation's a bit like that. Zooming, panning, focusing in on certain traits with apocalyptic precision. You know what I'm saying? Why does it do that? Well, it's because it's trying to capture your imagination, not just your mind to see things in a different way as they are. And so we ask the question, well, is Revelation real then if it's symbolic? Are these cups real? Well, the cups are symbolic. They're not literal, but they're real symbols. They're more real than the symbols themselves. And the reality that the cups represent, we're going to unpack as we go today. The point, of course, though, is with the picture to get our attention, to capture our imagination and to change us. And so Revelation is this prophetic and pastoral book in this way. That's the larger context. The more immediate is that we're in another series of seven. Revelation 15.1. Again, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. The seven plagues, we're going to see if you drop to verse seven, are golden bowls full of the wrath of God. So we're in this seven plagues, the seven golden bowls, another series of seven judgments. Now we've seen series of seven judgments already in this series, right? Right? Yes, okay. Um, What are the other series of seven judgments we have seen? We have seen first seven, yes, and then seven trumpets. Good. Seven seals, seven trumpets, now seven bulls. What is the difference between them? Herein lies the question. Well, uh, if you were to look at these, just the text, you would see there's an increase in intensity. The seals affect, Revelation 6, 8, a quarter of the earth. The trumpets, one-third. And the bowls, it was read in 16.3, all, every living thing. So you have this increase in intensity from a quarter to a third to every living thing. You also see that there is no longer an intermission between the sixth and the seventh, like you had with the seals and the trumpets. Again, an increase in intensity. It seems like things are proceeding without delay. So if you want to throw the next slide forward, lots of diagrams of Revelation out there. Pulled the Bible Project one. It's probably a bit small for you to see, but we're still going to do a little bit of this. So in this, you see the seven seals, the seven trumpets. Last week, you had seven signs, which are not judgment signs in the same way. And then here we have today, seven bowls. And if you notice, there's the intermission between the sixth and seventh seal. This is all the intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and now they proceed without delay. No intermission between the sixth and seventh bowl. What does this mean, this increase in intensity? Well, there are few, two main views. A few, namely two. 
main views with how these visions of judgment relate to each other. You can leave it on for another minute. The futurist view, here's the first view, that the way these visions relate to each other is chronological, okay? They sort of, sort of straightforward reading of the text in which these visions proceed uh, sequentially, and most, if not all of them, are occurring in the future. So if you had the three of them, you could sort of like stretch them out. You know, this seven, then add this seven over here, and then this seven over here. Seven, 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 21 judgments. There you go. That would be that view. Um, here's how Tom Schreiner, um, theologian, he holds a modified form of this, quote, the bold judgments differ from the seals and the trumpets in that their destruction is universal, suggesting the bulls are poured out at the end of history, future. Huh? The other view is the recapitulation view. There's the futurist view and the recapitulation view. In the recapitulation view, these are parallel descriptions of the same events. So this is a more symbolically layered reading of the text. So instead of 7 plus 7 plus 7, 21, it's like 7 equals 7 equals 7 happening at the same time. Huh? Follow? Good. We're good with the diagram. Thank you. So I think if you compare the trumpets and the bulls, you will see this. Okay? They're both modeled on the Exodus plagues. The first trumpet impacts the earth. The first bull impacts the people of the earth. And then in sequence, the sea, and then the rivers and the springs, and then fire, and, and so on, okay? They're following that same thing. And here's how Revelation scholar G.K. Beale would say it, that the visions relate to each other in that they're different perspectives of largely the same events. So the seals are seen from the perspective of the suffering church. Remember, that's what it meant to be sealed. You were protected. This, uh, trumpets from the perspective of the world. Remember, trumpets represent a battle cry of warning. And so finally then, what do the bulls, what perspective are they from? They're from the perspective of the throne of God. And we see this in that heaven is uniquely open for this last series of seven. So the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are from these three different perspectives. What of the increasing intensity then? What about that move from a quarter to a third to every living thing? Well, seeing that symbolically, it would be increased detailing that perspective gives. So think in the anime example, right? You have the zooming and the panning of a largely static scene. What's the point of that? You get more and more detail of what is happening in that scene, okay? This is the recapitulation view, more perspective of the same events. And this is, the text says, the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Okay, the last, and this could be the last in the sequence of visions that we've had in Revelation. And remember what seven represented, symbolic for fullness or completion. And so with this last series, we have the perfection or the fullness of God's judgment in all of its glorious detail. This is what we have in these seven bull judgments. Now, whatever view you have doesn't really matter for what I'm going to say this morning, okay, between the recapitulation and the futurist view. The point of this is that you see that we're getting the fullness of God's judgment here in all of its glorious detail. This is reality being unpacked in symbols, and it's done that way to get your attention, to capture your imagination, and to change you. Okay, Revelation is prophetic and pastoral like this. Okay, this sets the context. Now, where do these bulls come from? 
Dropping down from 15 verse 1 to 15 and verse 5, it says, After this I looked, and from the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues. They come from, it says, the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Why do the bulls of wrath come from there? Well, the sanctuary was the place where God's presence dwelt, where God in all his holiness and perfection was, sometimes described like fire. The tent of witness was the Ten Commandments that were housed in the sanctuary. There were God's just and pure and holy law. Remember, the Ten Commandments are not just an arbitrary imposition on how the world is. They're not some just sort of random thing. God says you have to live this way, not this way. They're actually a description of how the world is and how we are to relate to it. And so when we live in accordance with God's commands, we experience flourishing. We saw this in the Proverbs series. When we live against God's commands, it's as if we experience frustration, aggravation, right? We rub up against the grain of reality and that hurts us and it hurts the people around us and it hurts creation and it's called sin, okay? So when we live against the tent of witness, it hurts us. The sanctuary of the tent of witness is where God's holy law dwelt. Now, why do the bulls come from the sanctuary of the tent of witness? Is because this is the logical response to what happens when we reject God's just law. It hurts us. And God's wrath is revealed against us hurting us. Okay? The other way of seeing this is that the tent of witness is embodied in the person of Jesus, who became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that Jesus is God, and to reject Jesus is to reject God and his just and gracious commands. And so God's wrath is a logical response to that. This is why the bowls of wrath come from the sanctuary of the tent of witness, okay? And so we see this happening in chapter 15 and verse 6. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. There they are, that lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God in his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels was finished. So here we start to learn about the wrath of God. We're going to start to unpack this. The first thing we're going to see is that it is an expression of his glory. In other words, the the wrath of God is not dad off the cuff, rubbed the wrong way, hurtling insults and smashing plates on the floor. Okay? No. God doesn't need anger management. Okay? The wrath of God is like you see the angels described in this text. It is pure and white and golden. It's not that. And you need to see that. Okay? It is not unpredictable, unpredictable, crazy. No, it is, think of the image of the cup. This is where the symbolism comes in. Measured up, stored up, waiting, patient. The wrath of God is pure and white and golden and measured, and it reveals his glory. Now, this might surprise us, right? We might think, wouldn't God be better off without anger and wrath? But look 
Look at what happens as his wrath is being revealed in the sanctuary. As God releases his wrath, what do you see in the sanctuary? It's filled with the, says, smoke of the glory of God. In other words, the wrath of God doesn't hinder the glory of God. It reveals the glory of God. The wrath of God reveals the glory of God. It is pure and white and golden. The next thing we see is that the wrath of God is a response to his people. A response to his people. Really. Well, where else have we seen golden bowls? Does anyone remember earlier in Revelation? Golden bowls of something. Yes. Golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints going up. And commentators say these golden bowls are connected with those golden bowls. Bowls. Then in Revelation 6, you see the saints crying out, How long? Martyred saints, saints who have died for the Lamb. How long, O Lord, until you bring vengeance? In chapter 8, we hear God answer. He takes fire from the altar and he hurtles it back towards earth. And so the golden bowls of wrath are God's response to our prayers going up. Our prayers go up. His response is wrath coming down. Whoa. Let me unpack that for you. I don't want you to miss this. So often we pray and we wonder what happens. You know, we pray for justice and wars. Like Ukraine. We have people in our church from Ukraine because of that war. And we don't see peace. We pray for saints and persecution this happened. You're praying for some saint in a persecuted country, and they die. They're martyred for their faith. We pray for people who are sick, and they don't get better. You've probably experienced at least that. And we wonder, what happened? Did God forget our prayer? It feels like our prayers just sort of dried up. But you know what this text is saying? This text is saying your prayers don't just sort of dry up. Your prayers go up that they might be stored up so that it might be poured out and change history. It's amazing. Here's how Tim Chester says it. God is waiting until the time is right. And one day your prayers will be poured out before the throne and unleash the renewal of all things. When you pray for justice, the ultimate answer may be final judgment. When you pray for peace, the ultimate answer may be the reign of the lamb. When you pray for healing, the ultimate answer may be the resurrected body. When you pray for joy, the ultimate answer may be the wedding feast of the lamb. Whatever it is, your prayers are being heard. My friends, don't let your prayers dry up. Let your prayers go up that they might be stored up, that they might be poured out. This is what this text assures us. And it paints this image in our mind so it captures our imagination. And it changes us. And it changes the way we pray, doesn't it? See, your prayers are not forgotten. It might be a long time. And it might hurt in the waiting. But what this text assures us is that he who lives forever and ever will not forget to pour those bowls out. He hears your prayers. He does. Your prayers are and will reshape history. Keep praying. And including, 
This includes your prayers for justice, which is what we're talking about today. The wrath of God is a response to our cry for justice. The wrath of God is a response to your prayers. You asked for it. The next thing we see is that the wrath of God is just. 16, chapter 16 and verse 2, we're going to start to go through the seven bowls being poured out. The first angel went and poured out the bowls on earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. What does this have to do with? This has to do with false worship, those who worship the beast and his mark. What is the mark of the beast? Last week you would have seen it was economic and political systems that set themselves in opposition to God. On the head and the hands. There's ways of head, thinking, ways of living, hands set in opposition to God. It could be economic, it could be political, it could be a military system. Whatever it is, those ungodly systems, if you are to follow along in their ways of thinking and living, you're setting yourself up in opposition to God and his way of thinking and living. And that marks you, this text says. It marks you. You mark yourself, says God, and I will mark you. We're like, well, what's this mark he's talking about? Well, Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God being revealed against all those who Worship creation over the creator. It's talking about idolatry. Again, those ways of thinking or living that are set in opposition to God. And that marks you. Romans 1 talks about um, psychological, emotional, mental, physical distress that we cause ourselves as a result of our false worship. That these good things, when we make them ultimate things, status, career, a spouse, relationship, your schooling will destroy you. You mark yourself if you do that. But God says, you mark yourself and I'm actually marking you in that process. This is a form of my judgment against you. But rather than being marked by that, we are to be people marked by the Holy Spirit, aren't we? This is what we are called into. This is what we're invited into. And this is what we are sealed with. For those who know Jesus, you are sealed with the Spirit. You are secure in Him. And like John was marked by the Spirit, what did it mean for John to be marked or sealed by the Spirit? It meant his life was radically overturned. Right? He ended up in exile on an island. It cost him a lot to be marked by the Spirit. But that's who we are to be marked by. Okay? Let's not be marked by the world by the mark of the beast, ways of thinking and living that are in opposition to God, be it military, economic, or political. Let's be marked by the mark of the Spirit and his people. And you know what that's going to look like? We're going to be more excited about that kind of thing happening in our world than political things or whatever happening in our world. Think of this last year. What were you more excited about? What caught your attention more, raised your affections more? Was it an election? Was it a protest trucker movement? Or was it the news that God has poured out his spirit in some special way in Asbury, Kentucky, and people are repenting and praising him? What was more exciting to you? Guys, let's be more marked by moves of the spirit than by this world. The kingdoms of this world are nothing compared to life in the spirit. Yeah. The next two bowls we see are poured out in the water and they turn to blood, the seas, and then the seas, uh, and then the springs of water and the rivers, and they also turn to blood, and every living thing in them dies. And then we see this, I'm jumping down a little bit to verse 5. 
I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you. Now imagine that, the angel in charge of the waters. The waters just turned to blood and they're like, they're not like, what are you, you wrecked it. Just are you, O holy one who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they shed the blood of saints and prophets and you gave them blood to drink. So the angel gets the why of what's happening here. Like, just like we saw, you mark yourself, and God says, I will mark you. You shed the blood of innocent saints and prophets, and I will give you blood to drink. We learn something about the justice of God in this. The angel says it, you deserve it. You ask for this, you deserve it. In other words, the justice justice of God is not arbitrary, okay? The justice of God is not retributive. The justice, or sorry, Uh, vindictive, it's retributive. Retributive means it's not arbitrary, okay? The the punishment, in other words, fits the crime. You did this as God, and this is my response. The punishment fits the crime. The wrath of God is just. That's what I'm saying. This blood for blood, this mark for mark thing, the wrath of God is just. Now, maybe you hear this, and it's disturbing to you. You're like, okay, I see how it's a logical response, the justice of God, but it's still bothersome. I'm still just, it doesn't sit well with me. How can God be loving and dole out this retributive justice, this wrath in this way? Well, there's a theologian, Miroslav Wolf, who I found helpful on this. He says he once thought of it that way too. Shouldn't God just be love? Isn't the idea of God unworthy, God being wrathful, unworthy of this is, this is Miroslav Wolf. And then something happened in his country. War came to former Yugoslavia. He writes about 200,000 people being killed, 3 million people being displaced. His people were bombed and brutalized beyond recognition, beyond imagination. He went through that, and then he wrote this. How did God react to that car? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful in the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So does the wrath of God, friends, undermine the goodness of God? No. Rather, it's because he is so, so good that he deals zealously with the bad. The wrath of God, then, is an expression of the love of God. Verse seven, and then I heard the altar saying, the altar is speaking. Who is under the altar in chapter six? Those slain for the lamb calling out for vindication, crying out for justice. And what do they say now? The altar is saying, yes, Lord God almighty, true and just are your judgments. See, not only do we ask and pray for his justice, not only do we ask and pray for his wrath, my friends, we will praise him for it. You will praise God for his wrath 
You will say true and just are your judgments, O God. Can you imagine that? This might sit funny with you now, but the more you press into the mind of Christ, the more you will see that true and just are your judgments. You will praise him for his justice. You will praise him for his wrath. We will praise him for his wrath. Verse 8, 16 and 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. I think this represents just more torment due to exposure. And what do we find? Verse 9. They did not repent and give him glory. And then verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and curse God in heaven for their pain and their sores. This is a direct attack on the kingdom of Satan. And when Satan's kingdom is under attack, we see sort of everything begins to fall apart. Tim Chester, the theologian, points out that here in this text, the ungodly would rather gnaw their tongues in anguish than use them to give God praise. Isn't that tragic? And just like we saw in the fourth bowl, here we see it again. It says, they did not repent of their deeds. They did not repent of their deeds. We're going to see this yet again one more time in this text. And you might wonder, why is this recorded? Why does it keep even bother saying they did not repent of their deeds? Well, because I think it's indicating the possibility, the continued possibility through all of this judgment of repentance. Come to repentance. Come to repentance. It's God's Effort to rouse and to wake us up. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a death world. Has suffering roused you? Or has it caused you to harden your heart? See, if you've rejected God up until this point, particularly if hard stuff has happened in your life, This is God's invitation to say, will you still repent? He is patient, long-suffering. Scripture says he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God warns and he waits. He warns and he waits. He uses his megaphone and he warns and he waits and he is patient. And my friends, your tongue, instead of being used to curse him, can praise him. That there is a shelter this text is saying from the scorching sun. That there is a light that has pierced through the darkness. That God longs for you to come to repentance. Longs for you to come to a knowledge of him. And he's waiting patiently. His wrath then is held in patience. Will you turn to him? This is his invitation to you. Will you turn to him? God's wrath is held in patience. And yet he still must deal with the injustice. They did not repent of their deeds. And then verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now what is this referring to? Euphrates was the river on the outermost edge of the Roman Empire. In John's time, the Roman Empire was the empire in power. The outermost edge, this river represented a threat of constant invasion. Okay? And at any point, an enemy could march across there. And I think what you find if you look at Revelation as a whole is this river becomes symbolic of one where ungodly empires are judged. 
Remember, this is how Babylon fell to the Persian army. The Persian army marched up on a dried up river into the city and overtook it. This is how Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, and his army also fell. They fell in a dried up river when the water washed over them and the people of God reached freedom. This river represents judgment on godly empires being judged, but there's a reversal happening here. Instead of the people of God finding freedom because of the dried up river, now the people of God are under attack because of a dried up river. Commentators say that this is an unholy exodus. The river dried up for this army to march against them. And this unholy exodus is provoked by an unholy trinity. The trinity of verse 13, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So an unholy trinity provokes an unholy exodus, and from their mouths come, verse 14, demonic spirits. From their mouths, think demonic deception, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the day of battle on the great day of the Lord God Almighty. So here you have an unholy trinity provoking an unholy exodus of an unholy army against the holy people of God. And you're like, what's going to happen? We're going to get more into it in the coming This text will be unpacked in the coming chapters, the battle. But I'll give you one spoiler. But before the spoiler, in verse 15, Jesus interjects a blessing. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Now, in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of this battle, in the midst of everything coming against the people of God, Jesus says there's a blessing to be had. I'm still there. Stay awake. Isn't that amazing? He is always with us and ready to bless. And somehow his coming, blessed, watch out, I'm coming. His coming somehow is tied to this sixth bowl. And then in verse 16, they assembled at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Armageddon, you heard of Armageddon? Some some movies, you know. We got some creative people in this room. Armageddon, what's this? Greek transliteration, Har-Megiddo, Har-Megiddo. Well, Har-Megiddo is two things smashed together. Megiddo. Megiddo is a plain in ancient Israel, a flat place where Israel fought and lost. The people of God fought and lost several decisive battles and were conquered. That was Megiddo, okay? Har means mountain. Now, geographically, there is no Harmageddon in Israel. There is no mountain plain. It's actually a contradiction of terms. Okay, it's a, it's a paradox. It's a symbolic paradox that the ancient Jewish readers would have recognized. Now, what is it trying to say? What mount might it be referring to? Commentators say this might be Mount Carmel. Well, what happened at Mount Carmel? Anybody remember? The prophet Elijah The people of God, represented by the prophet of Isaac, go up and challenge the ungodly. And what comes down? Fire from heaven, and they conquer. And so what you put these together, what do we find? I think we find what we see in the next chapter. Here's the spoiler. That when the people of God are marched against by this unholy army that's crossed this, done this unholy exodus, provoked by this unholy trinity, that Jesus shows up and he speaks and it's done. It looks like they're going to be conquered. The people of God become conquering, but they're not conquered. The the plain on which they were conquered in the past becomes the mountain on which they will be conquered. 
whom God speaks. This is what I think Harmageddon is referring to. It is not a place, but an event, a decisive battle event in which the conquered and the conquering are switching places. This is the great reversal, that at the end of history, God's going to reverse the kingdoms of this world. Okay, think about what this means, that the empires of this world, be it Babylon or Rome, be it Washington or Moscow, be it cryptocurrency or TikTok, are going to be conquered and reversed. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Messiah. Isn't that exciting? It is coming. And for it to happen, 17 has to happen. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. What is done? Judgment is done. Wrath has been poured out. The next verses unpack this, describe this. I'm not gonna read them. Cosmic destruction, right? A great reversal of creation so that it can be re created in a way. God is going to renovate his creation. These verses are a terrible description of it. It is meant to be terrible. The wrath of God is meant to be awe-striking. It is meant to capture you. You are meant to feel it. You are meant to say, oh no. Okay? It is like Revelation we saw, to get your attention and to change you. It is both prophetic and pastoral in that way. And so let me sum this up. We've seen all of these things about the wrath of God. Does the wrath of God then undermine the goodness of God? No. It is this awe-striking response to the people of God. Our prayers for justice, his wrath is a response to that, right? It is, it is the glory of God on display. It is just and loving. And you know what? We will praise him for it. That is the wrath of God, rightly understood from this text. And so how does it relate to you? How does it relate to me? I want to end with an illustration. I heard this illustration recently, uh, speaker Zach McCreebs, and I thought, man, this is so fitting. And then he said, he's like, anybody who wants to use this illustration can use it, can steal it. I was like, I'll steal it. I'll use it. I'll adapt it. This is so fitting, but I've kind of adapted it for this, for this text. But let me walk you through it. See, I think this does a very good job of illustrating for us how this text is so relevant for our lives. Okay, so do something with me. Will you cup your hands together? You just cup your hands together in front of you. Now look into your cup. I want you to put everything that's making you anxious into your cup, whatever it is might be job anxiety, might be a school anxiety thing, anything you're worried about, just put it into your cup. I want you to keep your cup in front of you. I'm going to read this. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I want you to add to your anxiety, I want you to add to it everything that you know you've done that was wrong. I want you to put your sin in the cup too. Earlier I was talking about, you know, being marked by the way of the beast ways of thinking and living, put that in your cup. What's in your cup? See, apart from the grace of God, in my cup was control, 
in, in my cup, apart from the grace of God, was a whole lot of religious pride. In my cup, apart from the grace of God, was all sorts of stupid stuff I've done that I hid that I didn't want anybody to know about. Guys, what's in your cup? Imagine looking down into my cup and there's like this black ooze, just this disgusting tonic of liquid. And there's, there's things that I knew I'd done wrong. There's also just stuff I was worried and anxious about. Like we were saying, there was, there was my mom's cancer. I was worried she, was, she might die. There was troubles I was having at school. Big stuff, small stuff. All of that was in my cup. Guys, what's in your cup? The fact is you're going to have to drink what's in your cup. Whatever's in your cup, you're going to have to drink it bottoms up, like we saw. But wait. Scripture says there's another way. Romans 5, 8 and 9 says this. It says, but God, but God, but God, but God showed his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still holding this cup, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? My friends, there's another way. There's an out. Do you want to drink this cup or do you want to hand your cup to Jesus to drink? It's possible. You can give your cup to Jesus to drink. See, Jesus, where was he before the cross? He was in a garden. What was he doing in that garden? He was weeping. What was he thinking? He was thinking about a cup, a cup he would have to drink. A cup of what? A cup of wrath. A cup he looked down into and he saw the injustice in the sin of this world. And not just of this world, but of you. Everything you've ever done. He looked down into it. He saw injustice in that cup. He saw war in that cup. He saw hate in that cup. He saw murder in that cup. He saw child molestation in that cup. He looked down and he said, I'm going to drink that up. All of it. And he did. John 19.30 says this. When he had received the drink, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. My friends, Jesus drank that cup. So you don't have to. And John wrote both these texts. Okay? See that cup in front of you. We live between these two cries. We live between the cry of Jesus on the cross who took the cup of wrath and said, it is finished. And the cry that God will say in judgment one day over all creation, it is done. And you have the choice. Do I hand my cup to Jesus to drink so he can drink it and say, it is done and I receive his pardon? Or do I try and drink it myself and experience the judgment of God so he says to me, it is done. In other words, you're done. You're finished. It's over. Don't try and drink your cup. You can't do it. You're not sufficient to do it. It will destroy you. It will end you. But you don't have to have your life ended because Jesus' life was ended for you. And then he can give you new life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Guys, if you want to drink up your cup, there's a cost. It'll end you. But Jesus says if you give him your cup, he'll take it and drink it for you so you can have life and have it to the fullest and have it to the abundance. He is willing. He is waiting to take it. Don't try and hold on to it. I want to urge you to give him your cup today. If you're here and you've not ever given him that cup, give him that cup today. I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer. Okay? I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer. And Jesus, when he takes that cup, he doesn't just take a sip and go, ah, can't do it. 
No, he drank all of it. My friends, he drank all of that cup. I assure you he drank all of that cup. And before I pray for those who, who want to give Jesus your cup, I want to I wanna say another thing, okay? Is your cup empty because you've given it to Jesus or is it full because he's filled it by his spirit? See, some of you here wonder, if I give my cup to Jesus, what's going to happen? Am I going to be empty? See, there's an odd way in which the things that are in our cup, even as terrible as they are, we feel like we can't live without them. That there's a comfort in them. But Jesus assures us if we'll give him his cup, our cup, that he will fill it up with his grace, with his Holy Spirit. And so it's safe to pour your cup out because he's going to fill it with something different and something better. Give your cup to Jesus, okay? And when he does that, right, look, I brought some water bottles. I want to show this to you. Okay, when, when God fills you with his Holy Spirit, okay, he wants to fill you up, okay? He wants to take you from being a vessel of his wrath to a vessel of the glory of his grace, okay? He wants to fill you up. And some of us, we receive the Spirit and we stop. Sin keeps us here. Unbelief keeps us here. But God doesn't want us to stay here, okay? God told the woman at the well that he wants to give her a water of life that will never run out. He wants to fill us to a point that's overflowing so that we make puddles. That we make puddles of grace that we would be the people of God that overflow with the Holy Spirit, leaving puddles of grace in the places of decay, that we bring life. Puddles of grace in places of suffering, that we bring peace and presence. Puddles of grace in places of injustice and evil, that we stand against it, that we would overflow with the Holy Spirit. Are you overflowing with the Spirit? Are you letting sin hinder you? The wrath of God is revealed against all sin and unrighteousness. Give your cup to Jesus today. And if you have and you've received the Spirit, don't let anything hold you back from being a pourer out of puddles of grace in the places of decay. Why wait? What else are we living for? What is this chapter for? Just to freak us out? This chapter is so real. In it is the grace of God who can say over your sin, it is done. Receive it today. Receive it today. Let me invite you into the time of prayer. If you're here and your cup is full, I want to invite you to pour it out to Jesus. If you're here and you know your cup could be full of the Holy Spirit and you're holding back, I want to invite you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray first for that or, and then for the other. So for those who want to give their cup to Jesus, why don't you join me in prayer, a simple prayer. Jesus, I don't want to drink this cup. I was wrong, and I give it to you. And I do that by saying, here's the things I've done wrong. And I would just invite you now before God in his presence 
to just silently name with him the things you know you're holding back and hiding from him. For everyone else, you can just be praying that God moves in his grace now. And that he shines the light in every hidden corner of our lives. Don't leave even a drop. Give it to Jesus. He is willing and ready to receive it. If you've poured it all out, why don't you turn? You can, for those who've poured out their cups before Jesus, you can turn and look to me and say, Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Come into my life, change me. And now, for those who need more filling of the Holy Spirit, say, Lord, I'm sorry for whatever I've held on to. It's keeping me back from you. Help me to be overflowing to bring puddles of grace. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. I submit everything to you. Amen. You can open your eyes. Praise God. In this place right now, grace has begun to flow. Grace has begun to overflow in some of your lives. And what we get to do now is respond. And we get to respond from a place of overflow. That God invites us to himself. He invites us to worship. I'll invite the musicians back up. And we get to sing out, Lord, look what you've done in my life. Thank you, Jesus, that you have not left me with this cup to drink up to destroy me but you've given me your grace. That changed my whole life. There's a lot to sing about. And we also are invited to a table. This table represents, on it there's, there's bread and there's wine, which represents Jesus' life given for us. The cup in particular. We often talk about it as a cup of joy, but it's only a cup of joy because it's been made a cup of joy from a cup of wrath. That's the transforming power of God at the cross that's done that. It's amazing.